Welcome to the Sanction Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? Joining me today is Adam Smith, international lawyer and partner in the Washington DC office of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Adam is known to many in our community as a leading global sanctions expert. He has held senior treasury, OFAC and National Security Council positions. He's also had postings with the United Nations in New York, the World Bank, the IFC in Washington, D.C., and abroad, including the OSCD in France. Adam, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. It's great to be here, Justine. So we're continuing our focus on Afghanistan and particularly looking at the emerging risk situation, sanctions and humanitarian aspects. And actually, today's discussion is really timely because this week, the United States Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Holding a hearing on Afghanistan's future and humanitarian aspects, as you can imagine, and indeed sanctions relief were very much under the spotlight. So, Adam, you gave evidence to the hearing and spoke about the really unique situation of an entity, in this case being the Taliban, being subject to sanctions and taking control of a country. The term you used was dual entity. And I just really want to start our conversation by understanding what does this really mean? And how is dual entity complicating the international response? It's a great question. The dual identity I was referring to is this very interesting fact that there's never been a situation of which I'm aware in which an entity like the Taliban and the Haqqani network, which is related, of course, are designated and have long since been designated and now are controlling an entire country, an entire jurisdiction. What's odd about that is, as you might imagine it, it is not entirely clear what the designation of an entity, a group like the Taliban and the Haqqani network means with respect to Afghanistan. And what I mean by that is that it's clear that the Taliban and Haqqani network remain sanctioned. But does that mean that the government of Afghanistan is now sanctioned, given that they now control the levers of power in Kabul and elsewhere in Afghanistan? Or even more extreme, does it mean that the entire state of Afghanistan, much like Iran or Cuba or DPRK, are now sanctioned as well because the leadership is controlled by entities that are sanctioned? This sort of dual identity requires clarification, at the very least, clarity from the U.S. government with respect to what that means. Does it mean that the Taliban is sanctioned and that's it in and of itself? Does it mean the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan are sanctioned? Or does it mean that the Taliban, the government, and the state are sanctioned? Those are significantly different distinctions from the perspective of sanctions and compliance requirements. Yes, the distinctions are really important in sanctions compliance. So I think this is one we're going to be hearing an awful lot about in the future. And just within the discussions within the committee hearing, there were some really fairly strong views expressed by certain members on the current posture towards Afghanistan, and especially whether sanctions relief would bespoke international legitimacy on the Taliban. And, you know, one of the things people were really looking at was the central bank assets and the reserves being held at the US Fed, which are about 7.5 billion. And at the moment, these are frozen, or certainly, I mean, under what framework they're frozen, we don't precisely know, I believe, but they're certainly not accessible to the government of Afghanistan. In terms of real life impact, just talk us through the reality of what does this mean freezing the central bank funds and how does this play out in day to day movement of money? 
It's a great question. And of course, it's not the only institution uh, like it. In other words, there are other central banks that have been frozen before. The central Bank of Venezuela is a good example. Central Bank of Iran is another one. As a practical matter, what it means is that the use of central bank funds for broader fiscal and macroeconomic policymaking by Afghanistan is not available. So you need to use these funds at times to do two things, really. One is to make the currency a bit smoother with respect to its foreign exchange rate. So you can sort of intervene in the markets in order to make the foreign exchange rate a bit more stable. And the other thing you can do and you should be doing is using some of these funds in order to pay for imports, especially if your ability to export is significantly reduced and you need to sort of rely upon imports in order to sort of feed and clothe and medicate your population. And so without access to that, what you are going to get pretty quickly, unless there's some intervention of some other sort, a major balance of payments crisis, which broadly speaking is when you don't have enough money to cover the imports that you have to bring in. And so that's the real concern. The other piece of this, of course, is that in many jurisdictions, the central bank also has a commercial bank function whereby they are being used for foreign exchange activities for companies that want to engage in Afghanistan want to sort of provide services into Afghanistan as well. And of course, if you can't use those funds and more to the point, the bank itself is blocked or sanctioned, people aren't going to want to engage with it. You can't do that either. So it really is a freezing, and I use that term broadly, not necessarily in the sanctions world, sanctions speak, a freezing of sort of the macroeconomics of Afghanistan. And in some cases in the microeconomics as well, because the ability for companies, individual companies, even individual actors in the economy to engage becomes a lot more challenging without a central bank that's useful in that regard. So I think we're going to hear an awful lot more on this 7.5 billion and what it really means. And I think one of the things which really has does come through is the percentage of the population, which really does rely on humanitarian aid. And just the whole situation, we're seeing a humanitarian crisis looming, you know, as you've indicated, and as our webinars, I mean, through our rapid response webinars, you know, the country is running out of cash, government is not paying salaries to public sector, health is deteriorating, and the civilian population, the outlook is really bleak. A lot of the discussion in the hearing was about innovative ideas. What could happen? You know, what could the options be? And I, I wanted to ask you, what are the options for the international community? Is there a way to ensure access to cash for Afghanistan without strengthening the Taliban? So I do think if what we're talking about is strengthening the Taliban by recognizing them as the official uh, head of the government of Afghanistan, I think we can delink that question from the provision of humanitarian other support to Afghani people. And in fact, I think we need to delink that question. I am not supportive of identifying and recognizing the Taliban. And I don't think there's any appetite in the international community with a, maybe a few outliers from doing so either. But I do think we can provide services and aid to Afghani people without recognizing the Taliban. And there are a couple of ways I sort of talk about in my testimony that we should at least think about doing so. From a pure cash perspective, I do think it's risky to bring cash into the country. I think there are ways to do so that limit some of that exposure. By that exposure, I mean you bring cash into the country and the likelihood is the Taliban will swoop in and take at least some of it for its own purposes rather than for the people of Afghanistan. And therefore, I think the principal way to be thinking about helping Afghanistan, at least in the near term, is not through cash injections, although that is going to be needed, and I can talk about that as well, but rather through in-kind injections, 
What I mean by that is, let's focus on using their assets outside Afghanistan, both potentially the assets at the Fed, the special drawing rights that they have been allocated to the IMF and other assets, and not repatriate them to Afghanistan, but rather to leverage them to purchase goods and services that are needed for Afghani people, and then focus on the import into Afghanistan of those goods and services. Because if you bring goods and services in to Afghanistan, be it medicine, be it food, be it otherwise, Will the Taliban swoop in and take some of that as well? Likely. But it's much, much harder to make fungible, hard items, be it in-kind goods and services, than it is cash. So I think that the focus right now should be on the provision of in-kind activities rather than the, the provision of cash. There are potential ways to bring in cash. The absence of cash is going to be absolutely critical. It's already critical, but it'll become even more so. And there may need to be cash infusions as well, recognizing that there will potentially be some seepage to the Taliban. But there are ways we could potentially leverage institutions that the U.S. and other partners have built over the past 20 years to reduce some of that flow into the Taliban. One example people have been talking a lot about is leveraging really the only international bank of sort of real sophistication in the country called AIB and use them and their services as basically potentially the store of reserves and potentially the party that can conduct the auctions for U.S. dollars. Now, is it possible that the Taliban will sort of again swoop in and take some of it? Absolutely. But I think that as the urgency becomes even more paramount and it becomes even more clear to the Taliban, there may be ways to sort of use AIB for that purpose and make it very clear to the Taliban through the good offices of the United States, the UN, the EU, the G7, and maybe even China, Russia, and an appropriately incentivized Pakistan, that if they were to sort of engage in activities to sort of siphon off that cash, that cash flow will stop. And that, of course, would be deleterious to them and their ability to control the country as well. Not perfect, obviously, and I obviously would focus much more on the delivery of in-kind goods than on the provision of, of cash. But there may be needs for cash in the near term because, there, frankly, it's a cash-based economy. Without cash, there's going to be an implosion that could be quite substantial if we're not careful. Yeah, so thank you. I mean, that whole safe custodian channel route and also the in-kind goods and services is just going to be the conversation over the next couple of months. But there's another aspect to this conversation. And we touched on this in a roundtable we hosted about a couple of weeks ago. And it was with the head of UNDP Afghanistan, Abdullah al-Da'ari. And he spoke to the fact that saving lives means saving livelihoods and that humanitarian aid alone will not save the country. And these two comments that he said, they really stood out to me. So if we accept that saving lives means saving livelihoods, what does on the ground that mean for ongoing commercial activities and the role of the private sector? This clearly is going to create a requirement for operators to trade, have access to essential goods and services. Does this feature into what you've just talked about? Is this going to be possible? What steps can be taken here? I think that's exactly right. I think if there is a criticism of the general licenses, the exemptions that OFAC has provided thus far, which I know we might talk about in a bit, it's that they focus solely upon humanitarian provision and nothing more. There's obviously some uncertainty about what humanitarian provision is and how far it extends. And if the gentleman at UNDP is right, it actually should extend higher than just basic needs in order to actually protect lives. But I think the reality is that if we don't provide more than just the basic needs, the likelihood that Afghanistan could fall into a failed state, the likelihood that heroin production becomes the only viable commercial activity, the likelihood that China and Russia will step into the vacuum, all of that goes up rather significantly. 
So I think that's correct. I think that not for purely altruistic reasons, but for pure real national security reasons, we need to be focusing on the provision of humanitarian assets to begin with, for sure. But then, as the UNDP rightly notes, focus on providing opportunities to Afghanis to avoid the other and more cataclysmic effects of the rise of a failed state, the rise of narco-trafficking, or the return of narco-trafficking and otherwise. And so, yes, I think that what that means is that the licenses, from the perspective of what OFAC and others are going to need to be providing, are going to be significantly greater than just the two. The example I like to give is if the outcome of what the Taliban sanctions means is closer to a Venezuela model in which the government is sanctioned but the state is not, then what is going to need to happen is what has happened in Venezuela. As you know, in Venezuela, in order to restrict the impact, deleterious impact of the sanctioning of the government on the people, OFAC has had to issue dozens of general licenses, exemptions, and dozens if not hundreds of more specific licenses in order to provide exemptions for transactions that are critical to the people of Venezuela to basically maintain a livelihood, even in the wake of the Maduro government being sanctioned as a whole. The same thing will be true here. To have two general licenses when Venezuela has more than 30, I'm not suggesting we need 30 general licenses in Afghanistan, but I think that understanding, right, of what sort of things are being allowed in Venezuela will likely need to be allowed in Afghanistan as well if we want to be providing those services to the people of Afghanistan in light of or in the wake of the fact that their government as a whole is designated. So licenses, for instance, that allow for the protection of intellectual property, licenses that allow overflight fees to be paid, licenses that perhaps even allow the payment for utilities or the payment for licensing for activities, for commercial activities in Afghanistan. Admittedly, limited commercial activities, commercial activities that are very closely monitored and that hopefully will not be providing either legitimization or funds to the Taliban or the Haqqani network are the ones we want to focus on. But I think if we are going to be reducing the collateral consequences uh, on the average Afghani and potentially save lives and therefore livelihoods or vice versa, we're going to need to focus on those sorts of allowances as well as just pure humanitarian food and water allowances. Yeah, and we call this humanitarian plus plus for Afghanistan in that just can't be too narrow in the terms of humanitarian because the consequences here could be catastrophic. And this is certainly what's been coming up in all our discussions. We did see in September, on the 24th of September, OFAC issued two humanitarian general licenses, absolutely welcome steps. But they are early steps. Can you talk us through the scope of these licenses? Will they help ease the immediate situation? Having spoken to financial institutions and others, NGOs, it's not clear how effective these licenses will be in order to really reduce any of the collateral consequences in the immediate term. So there are two general licenses that were issued. The first one sort of brings the sanctions program in Afghanistan more closely aligned with most of other sort of sanctions programs the U.S. has that exempt broad activities associated with the U.S. government, with multilateral NGOs and other sorts of NGOs active in certain activities, in this case, humanitarian activities. So the U.N. and related institutions, the World Bank, etc., are now exempt from the restrictions that would come from engaging with the Taliban and Haqqani network. So that's sort of the first one. The second license is, again, makes it much more in line with other sort of sanctions programs. Now, the reason these licenses were needed, just so you're aware, is that the sanctions authorities under which Taliban and Haqqani Network were sanctioned are terrorism sanctions authorities, not surprisingly. And these terrorism sanctions authorities don't have, as a matter of course, generalized exemptions in them, unlike sanctions that we might have 
against Iran or Cuba or what have you, where there are generalized exemptions for allowing these sorts of activities that doesn't exist in the terrorism context. So they had to be added. So the first license sort of brings it in, into accord with respect to the UN and multilateral institutions, the, the U, US activities for uh, humanitarian purposes. And then the second license is sort of the food and medicine general license that you might see in every other sanctions program. So this is one that sort of says that to the extent that you are going to be shipping food, medicine, medical devices, and related activities, all very much in the humanitarian context, that will also be exempt. The problem with these licenses is not just that they are limited to humanitarian, which again, as if the UNDP gentleman is correct, is going to be not sufficient to provide the services that are needed in Afghanistan. But more to the point, there's still a lot of uncertainty here with respect to what humanitarian is. It's clear enough that food and medicine are humanitarian, but if it's correct that we need to provide a little bit more humanitarian plus in order to actually even provide that baseline, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty about what that actually means. And I think financial institutions and others who, of course, are the gatekeepers here are going to be looking at transactions, even those that are supposedly generally licensed, let alone those that may be on the edge with quite a bit of skepticism and quite a bit of concern. So I think that that's going to be, and many folks have already said, and I think the administration has said as much, these two general licenses are just the start and they're going to be thinking more and more about what's next. But I think there needs to be something next in the immediate term in order to alleviate some of those collateral consequences which have already befalled the innocent people of Afghanistan. So let's turn to what should be next. You know, what do you think OFAC will be considering now? What could they be doing to support humanitarian aid? There are two things that I talk about in my testimony. One is clarity and the other is creativity. Right, the clarity piece is what I mentioned earlier with let's have some clarity with respect to what the sanctions of the Taliban actually mean. If they just mean the Taliban is sanctioned and the rest of Afghanistan is not, let's make that clear. If it's the government is sanctioned, make that clear as well. But then we need to make sure that there are general licenses and other sorts of exemptions in place to alleviate the necessary collateral consequences of what happens when the central government is sanctioned. So I think that that's the first thing that needs to be done is that clarity. And I think I'm confident that the U.S. government is thinking through that clarity and how to make that clear in the near term. The second thing is creativity. And I think what's interesting about sanctions, as everyone on this podcast was well aware, is that there are almost no restrictions, be it regulatory, be it precedential, statutory, against creativity in sanctions authorities. We can do anything. It's really a blank piece of paper. And I think in that context, there are a couple of ideas that people are thinking about. So you obviously have the more traditional, what sort of general licenses can work. And I think that people are thinking a lot about some of the ones I mentioned earlier. The other thing that I think people need to think about are approved ex-anti-humanitarian channels. This has not been a traditional mode of sort of OFAC operations to sort of provide essentially a green light prior to transactions that these sorts of transactions, financial transactions are going to be okay. But increasingly, we're seeing moves to that in that direction, even by OFAC. As I'm sure any on this podcast are aware, in 2019, OFAC started talking about a humanitarian channel for Iran. And that humanitarian channel, basically, which has had very little pickup, to be perfectly honest, but the idea behind it is actually very interesting and might work very much in Afghanistan. One of the ideas is to provide OFAC, if an international financial institution or other entity provides OFAC with significant amounts of information and diligence with respect to what they're planning on doing, with whom they're planning on doing it, and what sort of compliance checks and, and protections they have in place, OFAC can take that information which it will receive on an ongoing basis, and provide assurances, written assurances to parties that that sort of transaction will not be of interest from an enforcement perspective. So this is you know, an, an approved humanitarian channel. And I think the benefits of that would be really significant because that's really what the private sector, and by the private sector I mean both profit-making and nonprofits, really needs. They need that certainty 
on an ongoing basis and on an ex-ante basis, right? They need certainty before they go in, not after they go in. So I think that humanitarian channel is something people are thinking a lot about, and I think that that would be a great idea. The second idea that I think people are going to be thinking a lot about is what to do with all those assets outside of Afghanistan. So Afghanistan has very little money, almost none inside the country. But you're right, they've got money at the Fed, they've got money at the IMF, they've got some ramp funds at the World Bank and some other funds elsewhere, including at BIS in Basel. And I think one of the things to think about there is to follow one of the lessons that we've learned in the Iran context. There, as I'm sure many of the people know, there are billions of dollars of Iranian assets that are mobilized outside of Iran in places where the countries have continued to purchase Iranian oil. But because of sanctions, those funds could not be repatriated to Iran. And so instead, those funds have been able to be used solely for approved bilateral trade. And I think that's an idea, again, focusing on in-kind trade in Afghanistan that we could actually use rather significantly here. And because there are two benefits there. One is that we're focusing on approved bilateral trade, so it's in-kind goods and services rather than cash, which I think does have that risk. The second thing is it speaks to the fact that we don't want to give the money just to Afghanistan under the Taliban just to open the spigots. The big problem there is not just terrorism financing, which of course is significant, but the lack of technical expertise, right? The Taliban has yet to appoint, and maybe they won't appoint, people with sufficient expertise and experience to actually manage the funds for the people of Afghanistan. And by keeping them outside of Afghanistan, I think you could potentially find people, technocratic experts under the UN, the US, the EU, otherwise, to help manage those funds on behalf and for the benefit of the Afghani people. So I think sort of creative ideas about what to do with the assets outside and to have humanitarian channels to get people inside, I think are ideas that are sort of swirling around. And I would be surprised if we don't see something like that in the immediate term from the administration and maybe our multilateral partners as well. These ideas are very creative, as you say, and certainly they're not entirely new because we've been looking at this through our task force of our humanitarian work stream of the International Sanctions Compliance Task Force. And we were looking at this in the context of Syria, Yemen, Iran, but Afghanistan is just so much more complex in, in many ways and the scale of need is so much more complex. So for that to move forward is clearly going to be a big resource for governments. And on this, I want to just expand because we've talked a lot about, you know, the US Treasury, OFAC, the US government position. And this is not just isolated to US sanctions, because we're looking at what 19 out of the 33 of the current Taliban government are already sanctioned by the UN. So it's a real live issue for the EU, UK, Canada, Switzerland, and indeed, in international institutions, World Bank, IMF, what should these countries and bodies be thinking about? What can they do, do you feel? I do think it's a very important to multilateralize these efforts. So I think that's right. I mean, the U.S. may be the biggest player in the, in the space, but they are not the only player. And we know that it's going to be critical to multilateralize in order to make this more effective, both with respect to maintaining restrictions on the Taliban and maintaining some allowance for livelihoods and otherwise to Afghani citizens. So I think it's very important to think about the broader G7, the U.N., the World Bank and other players, including the Swiss and others. And so I think that one of the things that people are thinking a lot about from the UN perspective, which of course then does feed directly into many of the other jurisdictions, is to think about the Somali example, in which there are sort of broad humanitarian exemptions written into the UN resolutions that still impose sanctions on certain parties in Somalia. And I think that's a similar idea. You know, it doesn't actually do much on the ground, but it does provide some legal cover through which Parties that comply with the UN, which of course should be everybody, can then take cover to then sort of impose and sort of develop their own sort of strategies going forward. 
But again, I don't necessarily think that what the U.S. is planning on doing or trying to do should be distinct from what the U.K., the EU and others are going to do. I, I think that we should all sort of work together. So if there's a humanitarian channel built, for example, it would be significantly stronger if others participated as well. And in fact, the benefit of having sort of a multilateral approach, both with other jurisdictions, be it the U.K., the EU, and potentially bringing in the FATF, bringing in the Egmont Group and others, is that we do multilateralize, we globalize that approach, we make sure there's not easy ways around this, so to speak, uh, for people who would like to just make a quick buck at the expense of the Afghani people. But it also sort of provides real intelligence gathering expertise, because I think one of the things that people are very concerned about and was very evident in the hearing yesterday was that now that the U.S. is gone, we have very few eyes on the ground about what's actually happening in Afghanistan. And by having these sort of humanitarian channels or otherwise that are sort of multilateral in approach and encouraging discussions, information sharing between the private sector and among private sector and government actors, we can really get a good sense of what's going on there in a way that I don't think we can. And so I think this humanitarian channel multilateralized may be a very effective strategy, both for the purposes of helping Afghanistan and for maintaining compliance with respect to sanctions and intelligence with respect to what the Taliban, Haqqani Network and others are up to. Okay, thank you. And finally, and very quickly, just sort of aware of time here for our listeners, but immediate priorities in terms of sanctions and licensing, what has to be put in place to save lives? Because this is really what we're talking about. We're talking about saving lives here. What is the most immediate priorities in your mind? The most immediate, and I would argue the lowest hanging fruit is on the clarification point. The US government needs to come out and make it very clear how it is viewing the fact that Taliban are sanctioned. Is it viewing it akin to what we've seen in Burma, where you just have the government and named entities that are sanctioned, which would be the least restrictive? Is it viewing it more like Venezuela, where the entire government is sanctioned? You need to be careful about engaging with the government, need a license for everything. Or is it viewing it more like Iran? I think it's unlikely that it's viewing it like Iran, but it frankly is unclear whether it's a Burma model or a Venezuela model. The clearest thing and the easiest thing for the U.S. government to do at this juncture is to make it clear which one it is, because then people know what the field looks like and knows what the restrictions look like as well. If it is just the Burma situation and there's actually a lot of room to grow and room to move in broader Afghanistan within certain concerns, I think the idea of being able to go back in in a much more robust fashion for those in the multilateral humanitarian space, let alone other humanitarian plus plus space, is significantly improved. If it's more like a Venezuela model, the U.S. then needs to figure out what general licenses are needed in order to encourage that activity. So I think that's the first step. That's the lowest hanging fruit. And I would hope they would get to that point very, very quickly. And Adam, we're going to be talking about this for many, many months to come because that may be a first step and there'll be many other steps after that. Thank you so much. I do hope listeners have enjoyed this podcast. Please do sign up to hear the stories behind sanctions. We will continue to focus on this topic and bring you all the news and developments. And you can access our podcasts, our roundtables and webinars from the ACAMS website. Look at Sanction Space. Adam, thank you so much indeed. Your expertise and input is just so valued and appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you, Justine.